Greetings, ladies and mendigants, and welcome to this latest episode of Tales from Outer Space. Taken from the subreddit HFY. The links to all the stories will be down below, and as always, I hope that you enjoy. And if you do, please consider subscribing. Story number one. The Mad Ones, a.k.a. or how the human race became the second craziest species in space. Written by Son of Nobody. Galactic civilization is a hard time agreeing on anything. That's hardly surprising, given that the mishmash of dozens upon dozens of sentients from thousands of different planets, only loosely bound together by a few laws they uh, mostly agree are necessary. At least on paper. A good example of this would be the constitutes a civilized species in the first place. The law books, written in simple, straightforward language so as to be translatable into many species' native tongue, state that before first contact is made a new species is welcomed onto the galactic stage, they must first be living beyond their original planet. How this gets interpreted depends a great deal on the species in question, and how the other members of the Galactic Council see them. The Texental, for example, were calm, logically focused omnivores who had given up animal slaughter for meat quite early on, as most omnivore civilizations did. They were very similar to the majority of the races making up said council, so they were welcomed with open arms while launching the research station where the scientists lived in space for less than a planetary orbit. Humanity, on the other hand, were fractious, illogical lot who still killed for sport, let alone food, and when launched in the early space efforts, they weren't contacted by the council until after the construction of a massive orbital habitat, and even then, a minority of the council members maintained their uh, no vote on the basis that their habitat had only been built because humanity had fricked up its planet so massively with greenhouse gases and other environmental problems that their habitat was a matter of desperate necessity. There were human babies born in space before first contact was made. Another matter that caused constant argument on the Galactic Council was the heavy gravity sentience. Earth itself skirted close to the definitions of a heavy gravity world, and sheer physical power that came from evolving in such an aggressive gravity, well, didn't exactly endear humanity to the more timid members of the council. But Earth was not a true heavy gravity world. Those were characterized by the simple fact that rockets couldn't get anything into space from one. To send an object into space by a rocket, whether a simple satellite or a life support capsule with a sentient within, required fuel to create thrust. The object being sent has mass, which mass requires a given amount of fuel to lift off the gravity well. Yet the fuel itself also has mass, which must be added to the total, requiring more fuel. Which must also be added, requiring more fuel in turn. In lighter gravity wells, those additional numbers shrink rapidly, hardly affecting the number for launch. In deep wells such as Earth, they meant that spaceflight calls for a tiny payload to top of massive tanks of fuel. But there comes a point where the gravity is so heavy that even a theoretical rocket made of the best and purest rocket fuel and nothing else would be too heavy for its own energy to lift. And so those worlds came late, if at all, to the galactic stage. Many of the council maintain that such a fate, life is hard, deal with it. If a species cannot get itself into space, that's not the council's problem. And changing the laws is simply not an option. 
Heavy gravity worlds have to wait until they invent quantum portals or gravity manipulation, and that's just the way it is. Sucks to be them. Others insist that this is hardly fair, and such races should be contacted when they attain a technological level equivalent to that most early spacefarers, and given assistance to get off their absurdly heavy planets. While still others hold a position in between, saying that such races should be helped subtly to get into space on their own, with quiet hints slipped into the appropriate scientists, so that they will develop the necessary tech level, thus technically adhering to the galactic law while still giving the unlucky heavy worlders a break. The debate raged, and meanwhile nobody paid much attention to the middle industry heavy gravity worlds, because they weren't getting into space anytime soon, so there was no need to check in on them. Then, a scouting mission on their way back looking fairly average world, significantly lighter than Earth, and pretty much right in the center of what was considered the galactic norm, happened to swing by a planet Muradiu, just because they were in the area, and arrived at the Grand Galactic Council station of Ixtuck, with the news that shocked every single species that heard it, save perhaps one. The Marito people had research station in orbit, it was a very small one, carefully designed to deliver the maximum return with minimum weight, but there were three Marito aboard it, and nearly a hundred satellites in orbit as well. The Maritu were decades, perhaps centuries away from gravity manipulation or quantum portals, so everyone was puzzled how they had gotten their fearsome gravity well. Certainly much deeper than Earth's, one of the deepest known to have produced a rocket-faring race, without such abilities. Soon... Dozens, even hundreds of carefully cloaked ships were hovering around Maritu, learning all that they could about the people who lived there, trying to solve the mystery. The Maritu people were stocky, compact things, hardly startling for a heavy gravity species. Humanity, with a penchant for comparing absolutely everything to Earth native animals, dubbed them the Squibiacs, for they were quadrupeds with thick coats of insulating fur, backwards curving horns, and the crest of manipulating tentacles that sprouted from their spinal region. They were herbivores and fairly placid ones at that. No horn crashing battles for dominance, no desperate fighting over mating rights, no territorial skirmishes. They seem to have subsumed on urges that ritualized competitions in the modern times tended as much towards poetry as towards combat. But they were also tough to the point of fearlessness and shared a rare trait with humanity. They were adrenaline junkies who did dangerous things for nothing more than a rush of the danger itself. They climbed the world's mountains despite the madness of seeking high altitude and a gravity much higher than Earth's. They strapped skis onto their four limbs and sped down the mountains at a truly reckless speeds. They held races over distances that would destroy more fragile species in such gravity, and sometimes half killed themselves doing it, for they were not a species both were running, but they did it all the same. The first impressions had been made, but few details were known to a watching fleet of desperate aliens when the launch that would answer the question of how the galaxy these creatures had managed to get into orbit was scheduled. View screens lit all across Marito's surface, but out near the moon's orbit hundreds or more displayed the launch pad with its oddly shaped, stocky ship, perhaps atop a nearly flat disk that looked nothing like a rocket nozzle. The launch carried two astronauts meant to replace the two on the orbit, as well as a landing shuttle to carry the colleagues down to the planet. But there was no attending crew, and there was no tower or gantry supporting the ship. In fact, there was nothing whatsoever for miles and miles. The ship's launch was in the center of an uninhabited desert, 
a strange decision given the effort required to transport it and everything necessary for the launch there. Control relays were remote, designed to deal with the brief delays that came from sending commands from massive distances, and absolutely everything was automated, down to the non-sentient robots rather than living beings. A countdown began, and while on the planet thousands of beings held their breath, and billions more went about their days without considering the launch at all, in orbit thousands more watched with intense anticipation. When the blast unfolded from beneath the ship, flinging it skywards, not on a pillar of cloud, but on an exploding ball of impossible fire that eventually became a familiar shape. A mushroom cloud, with a tail arcing upwards from it, marking the spaceship's path. The second explosion detonated mid-air, propelling the rocket faster still. The broadcast from the cockpit of the rocket picked up speed, sent across the planet and relayed into space by stealth probes, was buzzed by the radioactive interference. But this was never enough close enough to a translation. Wow! Yeah! Go, baby, go! On the taxonital ship, somebody said, Oh, sweet ancestors, they're nuking themselves into space. Somebody else, slightly incredulous, but almost admiringly replied, Well, a rocket ignitions were technically explosions even back home. Meanwhile, on the bridge of the EMS Zero Gravitas, a chorus of admiring whistlers and murmurs were put into full voice by one human lightning say, Goddamn crazy bastards, they built Orion. The Marito ship rose and rose in spurts and stutters, regularly kicking higher by titanic balls of thermonuclear fire. And all the galaxy watched it rise, until the last it broke the bounds of gravity and achieved escape velocity. Smaller thrusters that had steered and stabilized it all while now took over, guiding it into orbit that would eventually meet up with the tiny space lab. The transmissions from them, right after the one glorious whoop of joy, were professional and businesslike, dealing with the serious matters of getting the ship where it needed to be. But all the galaxy remembered the unbelievable madness of the sentient expressing pure exhilaration as a nuclear fire lifted it into the sky. Galactic civilization has a hard time agreeing on anything, but absolutely everyone agrees that the Marito are completely mad. End of story number one. Story number two. Human Engineering, written by Grey Wolfen. Every species ship designs reflect their own development from cultural norms. The trill being a web spinners have thin ships that are laid out in complicated web patterns. The Corelli build ships with organic curves and spirals similar to their own shells. Human ships are both the safest and the most terrifyingly dangerous ships almost any species creates, much like the humans themselves. They seem ridiculously overbuilt, with the simplest civilian transports being the equivalent of most races' light warships minus weapons. The safety features on any human ship stems from the human's legendary toughness and durability. Simply put, regardless of the damage, crisis, or disaster, some humans are expected to survive. Since the humans expect survivors, they make every attempt to keep the survivors alive. Multiple exit points, multiple lifeboats or pods, emergency medical supplies on every floor, training on how to use it all, the list goes on and on. Humans take these sorts of safety precautions very seriously. They say that the precautions are written in the blood of the dead. This is not a literal translation, but a human expression meaning that many died before the safety programs were put in place. The shipboard internal decks, walls, and doors that would also seem to be designed for military or heavy cargo, even the passenger or maintenance areas. 
This is not an error or a design to sneak through military craft under civilian imports. It is a byproduct of the human's mass and preferred gravity. An adult human male may weigh in excess of 100 kilos in an environment with a standard gravity of almost 10 meters squared. Humans are able to easily jump and run in this situation. Therefore, the decks, walls, etc. must be strong enough to withstand 120 plus kilos moving at 10 meters per second squared, or more, impacting in less than one-eighth of a meter squared, repeatedly. This is the way the humans have always built the ships for themselves, so they continue to do so for other races. If you ever have a chance to visit a human warship, pay attention to the thickness of the hulls and bulkheads. It is, um, impressive. The paranoia humans have about the fire aboard the ships has also been mentioned and often mocked. It begins to make much more sense when you experience the native atmosphere. About 20% is oxygen. Let me repeat that. One out of every five parts of air they breathe is oxygen. Yes, they have massive fires on their homeworld. Yes, on board a human ship, almost anything that can burn will. Electrical, insulation, paint, and any carbon-containing item. This includes most races, as hydrocarbons are common building blocks of many alien races, including humans. It is not a paranoia about fire, but simply a reaction to the incredible danger it presents to them. In areas of stress or extreme exertion, humans sometimes will increase the oxygen content to 25%. This risk is considered negligible to them. A 20% increase is seen as a minimal risk. Now, onto the danger of human ships. First, the acceleration and gravity. Humans can withstand many times the acceleration of most other races, often without any discomfort. Indeed, a common entertainment for their world is to strap themselves into machines that can do extreme acceleration and deacceleration for the rider's enjoyment. 20 meters per second squared is noticeable, but not uncomfortable if they are warned. Humans can easily tolerate up to 40 meters per second squared, although most find it unpleasant. If you travel on a human ship, make sure that you warn them of your limits. Magnetic fields. Human are almost totally immune to magnetic fields. It may damage their equipment, but their bodies seem to suffer no effects or even the strongest fields. Because of this, there may be little or no warning about them. Environmental conditions. Humans can endure extreme heat or cold and can travel between them easily. A human can enter a room at 100 degrees Celsius, walk through it and immediately enter a room of 0 degrees Celsius, pass through that room and enter a room of 25 degrees Celsius with no ill effects. Any extreme heat and cold exposure for longer periods of time will need proper protection. But what many humans consider somewhat unpleasant may be lethal to many species. Humans will do their best to protect any aliens from this, but often do not think to ask, as it poses no danger to them. Experimental ships. Do not go near a ship the humans are experimenting with. This is a ship that even the humans consider dangerous and possibly unstable. While most races will carefully examine to understand X and then Y, and spend as much time and debate on what happens when you add them together, the human concept seems to be we sort of understand X, we just found Y, add them together, we get Z. Now work backwards and find how and why that happened. One last thing to consider. Humans consider all technology to be the same. It is a difficult concept to translate, but they seem to be able to somehow cobble together technology from multiple sources. Any design philosophies that make them work together, often in ways that no one else considered. 
assume any technology they acquire from your species will be used in ways inconceivable to you. End of story. And that, my friends, concludes this video. I hope that you enjoyed. If you did, please consider supporting the author from the link down below. Otherwise, if you wish to support this channel, there are numerous ways to do so, like liking, subscribing, and possibly even becoming a patron. Otherwise, the easiest way would be to share. And until the next video, I hope that you all have a good one, and I'll see you then. Cheers.